Welcome to the sixth instalment of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. Over the course of this six-part series, we hope that you have found these sessions informative and that the practical advice we have given for both technology companies and companies who do business with technology companies has been helpful, in particular in focusing on ways to safeguard projects from potential disputes and that you now also have a better understanding of how to deal with a dispute if one should arise. The series is also accompanied by a number of related articles which are published on the DLAPiper.com website, so please do check them out there. Hello, I'm Simon Kenyon, a litigation and regulatory partner at DLA Piper, and I also co-head DLA Piper's UK and international technology disputes practices. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Marie Fegan, an associate in our technology disputes team. Both Marie and I specialise in providing legal advice regarding disputes relating to technology contracts to our clients, and we welcome you to this, the sixth, and for the time being, final episode in this podcast series. In the previous episode, I was talking to Sarah Ellington about different ways of resolving technology disputes by reference to the dispute resolution procedure found in the contract in relation to which the dispute has arisen. Today, we're going to consider and explore the use of evidence in those disputes, be that documentary evidence, witness evidence, or expert evidence and support, before finally touching on the use of without prejudice engagement, used often in parallel with open communications between the parties in an attempt to resolve a technology dispute. So, starting with documents, they will play a key and, in many cases, a pivotal role in any technology dispute. They are the most important source of evidence in any such dispute, both in of themselves and because they will underpin the other types of evidence that will be used in the case. Today, as we all know, a phenomenal amount of data is generated at an unprecedented rate by businesses every day, which poses challenges for organisations, especially when they're trying to store and manage data in the context of dispute. So, Marie, any initial thoughts on that? I agree. This is particularly so in relation to technology projects, which by their nature and longevity, Simon, can often generate a large volume of documentation, which is in many different forms and media. I think it's important to point out that in court proceedings in England and Wales, there is an obligation on parties to identify and make available documents that are relevant to issues in proceedings. The key principle being that the court should have all the documents available to make a fully informed and just decision. And the rationale is that parties cannot simply choose to disclose only those documents that are helpful to their case on which they obviously want to rely but they also must disclose documents which adversely affect their case or support another party's case, unless there's a right to withhold inspection. Yeah, that's a helpful intro. Thanks, Marie. So in terms of what steps clients can take to ensure they are organised from a documentary evidence perspective, if a dispute arises, what would you suggest? I think the main thing that I would suggest is even before a dispute arises, it is obviously good practice and sensible to have a document management system in place to ensure that the important documentations, such as the contractual documentations, change management documentations, governance documentations, etc., are properly maintained, but it's also important that they're easily accessible. And I think, Simon, you briefly mentioned in an earlier podcast with one of our other colleagues, managing technology contracts to deliver good outcomes. Most IT contracts will include a framework for project governance. So as you'll be aware, there's many different levels of governance meetings, and it is common at these meetings for there to be presentations and slide packs which accompany these meetings, as well as the minutes of the meetings themselves. 
These documents will often be the key documents, which will provide us with evidence of delays, the key decision making which took place on a technology project and why. There will also be technical documentation in relation to changes, code and testing, which are also often key. And having an advisory expert, as we will discuss later on, will be important to assist in obtaining a proper understanding of these documents themselves. So although document management may sometimes be seen as an administrative task, if a dispute does arise, it will be essential that you are able to quickly locate and export the relevant materials so that they can be reviewed by your legal team. And that will give us a better understanding of your position in terms of the strengths and weaknesses as these can be assessed. Yeah, that's right. And there will frequently be, in my experience, a project management office or PMO, which will, amongst other things, be responsible for keeping and maintaining the key project documents. And it's those documents, I think, which are shared between the parties, which are going to be the key evidence as to what has been happening, be they meeting minutes, as you say, or correspondence passing between senior commercial stakeholders on both sides. And it's the place that I always start when a technology dispute lands on my desk for the first time. There can also, it's fair to say, sometimes be an imbalance in terms of the party's ability to access documents, depending on where they are stored. And where there is such an imbalance, the party that has greater access to that document set and is better organised will, in my experience, have a material advantage, at least in the early stages of a dispute. And that's an advantage that often they may retain. Yeah, and I think it is important to bear in mind that IT projects are often complex. And in most, if not all instances, they take a significant time to implement. So it is therefore likely that the same personnel may not be continuously involved or individuals' recollection of events may not be precise. So contemporary documentary evidence will be vital if a dispute arises. So it is important that this data is safely stored, properly maintained and accessible. This is particularly the case because it is more likely than not that documentary evidence instead of witness evidence will form the key foundation of a party's case particularly as it will be their most reliable form of evidence, especially where a judge is likely to be presented with conflicting versions of events by the parties. Okay, and what about how you go about interrogating what can on any view be a huge amount of data in the context of such a dispute? So I think the first thing is that initially we will ask our clients to export to us certain data. But when clients do this export, it is vital that the metadata is maintained which basically confirms when the data was created, by whom, etc. Once we then have this data, we then transfer it onto our in-house review platform, where we have a set of comprehensive tools, which can help us to determine the most relevant documents in the client's data set through various stages of processing, review, analysis, and interrogation of it. As part of a case assessment, the data set can be assessed to prioritise topics of relevance and to minimise review volumes. So at this stage, we would usually analyse the document content by concepts, correspondence and key search terms. So if we briefly touch on concept clusters, this is where documents are grouped by concepts in prevalence in text, which allows for the identification of highly relevant topics, which we can then prioritise for review. 
Then we can also look at communication analysis, which identifies individuals and entities who are then shown in the context of who is corresponding with who and how often, which will enable us to confirm the key correspondence and their company domains. And then we also use keyword expansion. So this takes the terms which were identified in the initial review. They can then be expanded to discover related terms of arts, which are used by persons of interest. And then following the initial case assessment, there are some further tools which can be run to reduce the number of documents in the pool, such as deduplication. This is where duplicate copies of repeating data can be removed from the data set. Commonly, we will also apply key dates and search terms so that we can narrow down the pool of documents by only focusing on a certain date and the key terms which are likely to have been used. And then we also have email threading, which is where emails are grouped as threads to enable faster review. And we can also identify near duplicates, which are then stored together for ease of comparison. However, I think it's important to point out that there will still be a manual element to the document review. But even then, the likes of active learning, which is commonly referred to as AI, can also be used as well as advanced analytics to assist us with the review. So taking each of these in turn, active learning, essentially this ranks the review population in the context of decisions made by the review team. So relevant documents are then surfaced earlier and the review of irrelevant material can be limited. And this process is really helpful because it can achieve significant savings on review volumes. As in theory, you should be able to find the more relevant documents quicker. And then we have advanced analytics, which is commonly called case dynamics. And this tool allows you to manage facts and the information uncovered whilst you're reviewing the documents. So for instance, fact development allows for facts to be identified directly on the documents during reviewed. And then you can take excerpts, which can then be linked back to the documents and the issues, which you can then use once you're conducting the witness interviews at a later stage. Okay, so we'll come on to witnesses in a moment, but thank you for that about documentary evidence, which, as you say, is usually the preferred source of evidence. After all, it ought to carry greater weight because it should be a contemporary record of events, often tracing them back to before a dispute ever arises. But let's move on to witness evidence. Any initial thoughts on that? Yeah, so factual witness evidence is also extremely important because witnesses can plug the gaps in the documents. They can explain the concept behind certain documents or decisions, and they can tell a story as to why a dispute has potentially occurred between the parties. So I think at the outset of an IT dispute, and ideally when the issues first start to arise, it's important to identify the relevant witnesses. And when you're conducting an initial assessment of the case and reviewing the initial documentation, it will be important to identify the key individuals who were involved at the relevant times. So for example, you will want to know who attended the project governance meetings and who was involved in the key discussions between the parties. Simon, as we touched upon, IT projects are technical and complex. So it can be helpful to rely upon witness evidence, especially if, for instance, you have a witness who is able to explain why there may be gaps in the documentary evidence, or 
another witness may be able to clearly articulate an explanation surrounding certain technical points, which lawyers may not be familiar with. Yeah, I agree. So having identified relevant witnesses, what do you suggest next? I think it is very important and sensible that we obtain a proof of evidence. So what usually happens is you'll have identified the key individual or witness who will be involved. It will then be important to speak to them to determine if they're willing to cooperate. And if so, we will then arrange for a proof of evidence to be attained. The proof of evidence involves running through everything in chronological order by reference to the documents that the witness knows that might be relevant to the case. And often it is the case that this proof is a full warts and all story covering all the background facts, the issues in dispute, and then we'll take that information and use it to form the basis of a witness statement. So I think it's important to keep in mind that the proof of evidence should be taken at an early stage, given that human memory isn't perfect and it fades over time. Also, witnesses may leave the role or the business. Alternatively, they may become less willing to cooperate with us. So it's important that we get their recollection early on. And finally, I think it's also important to obtain a proof of evidence as it will allow you to assess the strengths of the evidence and to also monitor if the evidence is consistent between the various witnesses. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think it's also, as you suggested, prudent to involve the legal team if you're interviewing witnesses or obtaining proof of evidence. That way you can maximise the opportunity to benefit from the protection of legal professional privilege. And there are also important new rules which came in recently, which we're all currently getting our heads around regarding the content and structure of witness statements. But that's a training session all of its own, so we won't delve into that any further now. The final point I think I'd make about witness evidence is that the witness statement marks the high point of such evidence. Clearly, that evidence is there to be challenged in cross-examination if the matter goes through to a full trial by the other party's barrister. And that's always a nervous time, not only for the witness, but also the client and the legal team who are watching on. And certainly in my experience, many cases are won and lost on the strength of the witness evidence and the performance of the witness or witnesses at the trial. So credibility is absolutely key with witness evidence. Okay, you mentioned earlier about experts as well. So finally, in terms of evidence, let's discuss the use of experts. You start us off, Marie. Thanks, Simon. So there are two types of experts. And I think it's important that we briefly touch upon the distinction between them. So you could have an expert who is instructed to assist the court when the case before it involves matters on which the court does not have the requisite technical or special knowledge. And these experts are commonly referred to as expert witnesses. And secondly, you can have an expert who is an individual who has been instructed to act solely in an advisory capacity. And these individuals are often described as expert advisors. And I think it's important to point out that pursuant to the civil procedure rules, an expert witness is a person who's been instructed to give or prepare expert evidence for the purpose of proceedings. This basically means that an expert witness has a duty to assist the court. And this overrides its obligations to those instructing the expert. Whereas if you have an expert advisor, they may assist you and the lawyer. Sorry, whereas if you have an expert advisor, they may assist you and us as the lawyers to evaluate the claim. 
especially if they're instructed early on. Okay, so recognising that very important distinction that you've made there, for the purposes of this discussion, I think we should just focus on the role of the, the expert advisor. Now, IT disputes often, as you've said, involve very technical and complex issues which are costly and time-consuming to unravel and may therefore require specialist inputs as well. Certainly in my experience, a good independent expert advisor can therefore be invaluable and we have used them on many occasions to our client's advantage. The client will obviously often have its own internal resource which will still be helpful but I think it's important to recognise that that team may unfortunately be just a little bit too close to the issues and so therefore less able to be objective about the problems the project has faced or is currently facing. And in the past, we've therefore instructed expert advisors to conduct various analyses, such as a critical path analysis to determine why a project has been delayed and the resultant impact. Delay, just to be clear, is usually the main symptom of underlying problems in a project and how those problems manifest themselves. We've also had experts look at an investigation into alleged faulty design or operational deficiencies such as system instability or unreliability. And that's with a view to determining if the supplier performed the services in accordance with, let's say, the industry standard or best practice. And then finally, we often instruct experts to produce an analysis of changes to determine if the requested work constituted a change to the scope or the requirements for which the supplier ought to be compensated, or if alternatively it has arisen as a result of a defect or other default on the part of the supplier, such that the supplier's solution needs to be changed, meaning that the cost of doing so ought to be borne by the supplier. Now, pretty much every digital transformation project dispute I have ever been involved with, and there have been many, has had somewhere at the heart of it a battle between the customer alleging defects and claiming that the supplier has not delivered what it promised, while on the other hand, the standard supplier response has been that what the customer is portraying as a defect is actually a request for a change, which reflects the customer having changed its mind as to what it actually wants the solution to deliver. So, Marie, are there any risks that you ought to be aware of if you were considering instructing an expert advisor or an external consultant, perhaps to review a project or to conduct a lessons learned exercise? Yes, there are some risks. So, Often on tech projects, external consultants will be appointed to conduct an insurance review or lessons learned exercise. And I think in the past, Simon, we'd agree that we've seen this happen where issues are starting to arise on a project. And it might be at a stage when a dispute is brewing. So you will decide that this is a good point to get a third party in to review the work project to see what issues may have arisen. But I think... Obviously, these exercises are invaluable, but it is very important to keep in mind that they can produce documents which may highlight weaknesses in your position. So if the consultant produces a document which highlights the risks and concerns, then this document will be disclosable in any future legal proceedings. So it is therefore worth considering whether an expert can be appointed in an advisory capacity to undertake these reviews, but also in conjunction with your legal team as these reviews may then be able to be cloaked in legal privilege and may not have to be disclosed in future legal proceedings. And I think it's important to point out that in England and Wales, the basic position is that if a document is privileged, it enables a party to refuse to disclose it in litigation, subject to limited exceptions. And no adverse inferences can be drawn from a valid assertion of legal professional privilege. 
And there are two main types of legal professional privilege which are recognised in England and Wales. The first is legal advice privilege, which exists to protect confidential communications between a client and its lawyers, where the dominant purpose of the communication is giving, seeking or receiving legal advice. And then the other type of legal privilege is litigation privilege, which protects confidential communications between a client and its lawyers or either of them and a third party, where the sole or dominant purpose of the communications is giving, seeking or receiving legal advice in conjunction with adversarial proceedings or collecting evidence for use in these proceedings at a stage when a dispute is reasonably contemplated. Therefore, this is particularly important to keep in mind as you do not want to inadvertently waive privilege to certain documents which have the potential to cause you issues or undermine your case at a later stage especially if they highlight weaknesses. Yeah absolutely and as one example of that I've certainly been brought into a dispute on a number of occasions where a client has already sought those sorts of inputs from a third party as you say perhaps as part of a lessons learned exercise but in doing so hasn't really fully thought through the implications of a report being produced, which provides a warts and all view as to what's gone wrong. And if proper consideration has not been given to how to go about instructing the expert advisor so as to cloak any reporting privilege, the instructing party risks scoring what I describe as a spectacular own goal by creating evidence that will have to be disclosed later in circumstances where it may well be very damaging to its own case. Okay, so that's evidence. Let's just move on briefly and finally to without prejudice communications or correspondence. That's the final topic for today. The use of without prejudice communications can help to resolve a technology dispute. So Marie, to start with, can you explain what without prejudice communications are? So the without prejudice rule will generally prevent statements made in a genuine attempt to settle an existing dispute, whether made in writing or orally from being put before the court as evidence of admissions against the interests of the party which made them. So in other words, the evidence will be privileged. However, this situation is different where the statements are made on a without prejudice save as the cost basis, in which case they're not admissible in the substantive dispute, but they are then admissible on the question of costs, which will be decided usually at the end of a dispute. So one reason for having the without prejudice rule is the public policy of encouraging parties or potential parties to litigation to settle their disputes out of court. And the simple rationale is that settlement discussions, and it is hoped settlement itself, will be facilitated if parties are able to speak freely, secure in the knowledge that what they have said and in particular, any omissions which they might have made to try to settle the matter may not be used against them should the settlement discussions fail. And in IT projects, there is often a dispute escalation provision, which frequently involves without prejudice negotiation meetings between the senior project team members, which is then followed by escalation to negotiation between senior executives before more formal methods of dispute resolution are deployed, such as mediation or litigation. And the idea is that the parties may be able to resolve disputes, issues or disagreements at an executive level in a more informal and 
efficient manner instead of deploying the nuclear option, which is commonly litigation or arbitration. And litigation and arbitration, that obviously has the potential to cause irreparable damage to the relationship between the parties. So given that the initial steps and mediation are usually conducted on a without prejudice basis, they tend to be less adversarial than formal litigation arbitration. So it is hoped that if the parties can amicably resolve their differences at this stage, then it is possible that a commercial relationship will be able to be preserved. Also, if there is a dispute escalation provision contained within your contract, the parties are often required to engage in alternative dispute resolution mechanisms, such as without prejudice meetings and mediation, without either of the parties having to suggest it. And this is advantageous given that parties can often be hesitant to suggest alternative dispute resolution, as it is then assumed that there must be a weakness in their case. So these types of provisions enable the parties to explore a resolution whilst also being able to save face. There are also two final points, I think, to bear in mind in respect of without prejudice communication. The first is the inclusion of the words without prejudice will not necessarily bring the communication within the ambit of WP privilege if it isn't in substance a communication made in a genuine attempt to settle an existing dispute. In other words, it's not a panacea and we've seen many parties come unstuck in that way. And similarly, interestingly, not labelling a communication without prejudice is therefore not necessarily fatal to claiming privilege either but it's certainly advisable to give the communication that label if that's the intention so as to avoid an uphill struggle later to claim privilege. And I think it's also common practice to have a twin track approach where parties are able to try to negotiate a settlement under the cloak of without prejudice privilege and therefore make any omissions or concessions they want to, while at the same time firing bullets at each other in open correspondence in order to provide the context of the legal case and the associated risk that each party will face if a settlement isn't achieved. Well, that brings us to the end of the sixth and final episode in the current series of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. We hope you enjoyed the podcast series and found it useful. Look out for more podcasts later in the year. Please also look out for the article which accompanies this episode and the others relating to the previous episodes which are all now available on the dlapiper.com website. If you have any questions on anything we have covered in this series or more generally about technology disputes topics, please do not hesitate to contact me direct at simon.kenyon at dlapiper.com or indeed any of the members of the team that you've heard from over the past number of weeks whose details you'll be able to find on our website. Thank you for listening.